Welcome to Places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. On Mother's Day, I spent the evening talking to Karen Pittman, an actress I deeply admire. Every time I watch Karen perform, I notice her strength first and foremost. Even if the character she's playing is hurt, even if she's struggling, there's something fierce and determined in her performance. I selected three of Karen's many roles that exemplify strength of character, two from theater and one from TV. In our conversation, we discussed how these characters find strength when circumstances are challenging. And because it was Mother's Day, or maybe it would have come up regardless, we talked about how motherhood demands a similar degree of strength. Karen's life as an actor began the same year that she became a mother. To be specific, she was pregnant when she auditioned for NYU's graduate acting program. So her experiences as an artist and as a parent are forever entwined. This was a really interesting conversation about motherhood and about art. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my interview with Karen Pittman. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Lonnie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so I want to start by wishing you Happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you. Happy Mother's Day to you. <laughs> thank you so much. So uh -huh. um, you share a lot on Instagram about being a mother, and I mm -hmm. want to get into that in a little bit. But first, one bit of observation. I noticed okay. that you have tattoos in Hebrew of your children's names. That's, <laughs> that's right, I do. I was wondering what was the inspiration for the Hebrew lettering? My former husband is Jewish. Mm-hmm. And my son celebrates that part of his heritage pretty much in a secular way. Mm -hmm. But he had a bris. I, right before we got married, I studied the Torah for seven months. I did not okay. convert, but um, that was just, you know, I have a great respect for religion. I love religions. I love Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Hinduism. I love all of the things that are part of the mystical spiritual world. And so when I thought about getting tattoos, my son obviously is part Jewish. And so I thought, well, it seems appropriate to, to have a, his name in Hebrew on my hand. Mm -hmm. And then I did that. And uh, my, my daughter was like, well, I'm not Jewish, but I think my name should be on your wrist. <laughs> and her name is Lena. And uh, so I just, I, and her name actually means the bright star. Mm -hmm. So I just, then I, so I have little stars on my, my, um, on the top of my hand and the back of my hand and her name in Hebrew. Well, I was wondering about that, if you had studied or if you had um, knowledge of Hebrew, because there, there is a bit of um, uh, a pattern of a famous individuals getting tattoos in Hebrew I know Steph Curry has one, for instance. I think Ooh, maybe, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a bunch of people. Um, David Beckham has one in Hebrew. Uh, maybe it's an athlete thing, <laughs> but I, maybe because there's something, um, there's an ancient quality to Hebrew lettering and to Hebrew, the language itself. So uh, yeah, I, was, well, I sort of noticed it and was curious. Really what, what seemed authentic to me was my connection to Judaism, my, my love of my son and my love of my ex-husband. And, and that was a very important time in my life. So um, 
it spoke to me specifically. I, I did not know that Steph Curry and David Beckham had done it. <laughs> I'm part of a trend. Um, well, I think it's fitting that we're speaking on Mother's Day because the theme that I wanted to discuss with you for this episode, regardless of the day in which we spoke, was uh, going to be strength of character. And mm-hmm. I think that mothers so often are the em- emotional power lifters of the family. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> and if they don't start out that way, they certainly develop it over time. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that your origin story as an actor overlaps with your origin story as a parent because, <laughs> <laughs> because you auditioned for your MFA acting program while pregnant and while possibly mm-hmm. visibly pregnant. I mean, maybe it was sort yeah. of midway. I well, No, 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 no. I was visibly pregnant. I was a big pregnant woman. Yeah. So what's amazing to me about that is just having recollections of my own pregnancy and you're, you're so aware of your expanding body and uh. the the actor going in for an audition is so aware of her body and her physical presence because you're bringing the presence of your physical self to the audition. Mm -hmm. And the pregnant person is bringing the awareness of her physical presence into any space she enters. So did those two things work in tandem? Like, were you bringing the performer and the expectant mother to that audition? My whole reason to investigate acting as a way of creating a purposeful, meaningful life was really about feeling the urgency of the moment because I was pregnant. I Mm. thought I've got to do something now. Like I've got to figure this out now. Oh my God. It's so important because I am going to bring another human being in the world and I am going to be the greatest reflection of what they need to do, create and um, engage with in this world. And I set the the standard. I I set the example. And so um, I do think that that was part of the powerful uh, impact of my audition. And Mm -hmm. I did go in and I saw other girls, you know, who were already in the program. And um, one of the girls who saw me is Denai Guerrera. And uh, Denai, as you know, yeah, she is now a really wonderful actress, but also wonderful playwright. And uh, were you the same year? No, Denai was already in the program, leaving the program. She was, I auditioned in January of the year that she graduated, right? Yeah. So Denai and Nicole Salter, who sure. also, they did, a, yeah, they did a, a two-person play at the end of their time there, but they toured around the country, but yeah. also in, in New the York continuum. City. And in the continuum, it was a fantastic play. And so I, I literally was trying to hold my stomach in. I was five months pregnant. <laughs> holding my son again. I thought I was doing a really great job. And then I saw Nicole and Denai in the corner and Nicole said, Oh, wait a minute. Hi mama. And I was like, Oh shoot. (laughs) (laughs) It was given away. But there was that moment I was on the ground with Zelda Chandler and Janet Zarish in the, in the room and in the middle of my audition. And they really were putting it to me about how are you going to make this work? How are you going to make this work? And was something that I think is inherent to that strength of character that you were talking about that uh, mothers have. I mean, there is that moment where I, at least in this audition, I was faced with a, with a question of how are you going to make this work? And in adversity, you get to show the strength of your character, right? It isn't mm-hmm. until you really uh, have something to lose or have something to gain that you have an opportunity to demonstrate what it means to be a human being 
in this world and what you stand for. And so I kind of put it right back to them and in only the way that a mom could, who was pregnant, five months pregnant on the floor in a classroom at NYU trying to do um, Susan Laurie Parks, you know, yeah. <laughs> desperately try to contact her Venus Hottentot character. Um, and I gave it right back to them. And, you know, I do think that Jacob's presence in my life is the X factor as to how this um, career got started for me. My daughter, Lena, I think, pushed me further down the road to investigate a deeper experience as an actor. But my son opened, he was he was uh, the gateway into starting for me to start to really be more curious and to explore what I could do in the world in a in a bigger way, in a better way. You have now a tremendous resume as an, a stage and screen actor, um, but I'd like to focus on three specific roles that I think really exemplify that kinds of strength of character. So mm-hmm. the three that I have in mind, although there's many uh, from your uh, oeuvre to choose from, um, on The Morning Show, which recently premiered on Apple TV Plus with Jennifer Aniston mm-hmm. and Reese Witherspoon, you played a determined TV producer named Mia Jordan in mm-hmm. Pipeline, a play at Lincoln Center uh, by Dominique Mariso. You played a dedicated school teacher named Naya and in Disgraced, a Broadway play by Ayad Akhtar that won the Pulitzer Prize, you played an ambitious lawyer named Jory. So these are all three very different women, but I, I find a very common kind of strength. And I want to ask your thoughts about where that strength comes from, if it's on the page, what you bring to it. Um, so I want to start with Jory first. In okay. Ayad Akhtar's stage notes uh, from the physical, the, the, the published play, the, okay. the physical description of Jory says she is, quote, commanding, forthright, intelligent, almost masculine. So I'm wondering about that last one there, but <laughs> how does Jory exude strength? And how do you manifest that? Ayad would probably laugh at that. (laughs) (laughs) Because that play has changed so much since I, since it was introduced. You know, there's a, masculinity is something we talk a lot about now. And I'm going to, I'm going to start from that masculinity when I go to strength of character. Um, Because there is a kind of quiet, calm knowing that comes with, um, men who are very masculine they are extremely confident they take up all the room on the you know on the train do you know what i mean they mm-hmm. just in, inhabit an enormous physical presence so um part of the dynamic of doing that character is that she wasn't brought in until maybe the third scene of that play so the play had been established in the storyline the arc of the main character who is a mirror in the play had been established for about 40 minutes before Jory comes in. Yeah. And she kind of comes in, in a, you know, in a kind of a lightning bolt moment. Do you know what I mean? She just brings a light in. And, um, I, I find that the human beings that I've asked to habit or the characters that I'm given to portray really do have this singular thing all the way through them, which I think is a mark of true character, which is they bring in a light. They bring in the light into the storytelling, mm. you know, or shades of it, you know, even diamonds have a 
inclusions, right? Mm -hmm. So you're seeing lots of shadow and light in these characters, but when they enter the story, you're seeing lots of, lots of ways they reflect storyline in their character, right? So I think that for Jory, she brought in the humor. She brought in the light. She brought in the, uh, the afro my my character had a natural at the time mm-hmm. uh which was something that i brought into the audition room and uh i kind of was just wearing my hair like that in 2011 2012 i think we were doing the 2012 when we started doing the play off broadway with asafondi um which isn't typical of women that you'll see at, at the at the top levels of partnerships at, at law firms in, mm-hmm. in new york Typically, their hair is straight, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, more, more like Mia in a in more like Mia. Show. That's right in the morning show, and um, I think that Jory is is a uh, strength of character comes from her ability to not say anything. Jory doesn't say a lot in the play. In fact, when I was working with Ayada, I was like, "Does she have to say that?" He was like. Well, actually, no, she doesn't. Sometimes he say, no, Karen, she has to talk. <laughs> so there, I think that the most powerful and strong people in the room are typically the people that don't say a lot. You don't hear a lot from them. So huh. um, Naya is different in that way because Naya, the character that I did in Dominique's play, Pipeline, she talked a lot. She was in the, the play all the way through. But you'll find that Mia in the arc of the morning show uh, does not say a lot. She swallows a lot. She takes a lot in. And then she finally does have a moment where she moves forward and, and steps up and says something. And you have to pay attention. You have to. Yeah. That's a great point of comparison. I like that you mentioned the the presence, the light that Jory brings into the play when she enters a good portion of the way into it. Uh, because there's a very deliberate moment or what I saw is deliberate. And I'm wondering if this was a specific directing choice that when you come in, you are wearing a coat, Jory's wearing a coat and she takes it off and it's really center stage. And you see that you, Jory, uh, in Jory have a very muscular toned figure. And it seems like a very deliberate moment that you take off this coat and you're wearing a dress that really shows off how physically fit you are mm. that projects immediately. And it's a very, it's black and it's just like very sleek and yeah. it's, it's set against a very like feminine floral dress that Emily, the, the other woman in the play is wearing. Well, that was the great brilliance of Jennifer von Meyerhauser, who was the costume designer. I mean, that, that play was um, costume design within an inch of its life. And I thought every <laughs> single piece that every character wore um, from the floral print shirt that Emily wore in the beginning of the play and the jeans that she wore to the dress that you saw her in and Amir's coats and jackets and um, just all of it was really designed perfectly. But I, as far as the character was concerned, I thought of Jory as a runner. Mm-hmm. I thought of her as someone who got up very early in the morning and went running. And um, I didn't, th- I thought maybe she goes to a spin class, but I was like, she's definitely not into yoga. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> my gateway into my characters is their, their body. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. my, um, 
one of my most, the most important mentor I had in my acting career, or one of the most, was Zelda the Chandler. And she would always say to me, your body knows what to do before your mind does, all the time. So lead with the body. An actor leads with the body. Ayad Akhtar I did a speech a couple of years ago um, where he talked about this at the Steinberg Award ceremony, uh, where he won another award for excellence, but he talked about how important it was for the actor's body to be in the room with the audience and the power um, that it has, the strength that it has in just simply placing your body amidst other people and beginning to speak. You know, the physicality of the actor's body is is the is the storytelling. Uh, mechanism as well. So for me, the backstory with Jory and her masculinity and my arms and all that, 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 what you saw that Jory inhabits, that is a function of what I thought she probably was doing before she came in. And Broadway tends to be an athletic, uh, performative experience. So you have to be in shape to do mm. a Broadway play eight shows a week. You just have to. So, yeah. So Disgraced is about a Muslim lawyer who lives a very successful life, but is really plagued by his sense of identity. And he and Jory share a kinship, both because they are ambitious lawyers at the same firm and because they both understand discrimination. I wouldn't say that they understand discrimination in the same way, right? Yeah. At that time, you know, there is a sense that there can only be one brown person at the top. And that is certainly part of the dynamic that has been created in a white patriarchal society. I will let one of you up here, you mm-hmm. know, just to show that we are doing something, do you know? And um, I think the difference between Amir and Jory is that question of character. It's that question of where are you aligning your integrity? And Amir had a lot to hide in that play. And uh, Jory simply knew how to play the game a little bit better than Amir did. Um, she, of course, ends up with a partnership and Amir uh, did not. And yeah. I think part of that mechanism is I think that it's kind of a nod on the playwright's part that white male patriarchy isn't as intimidated by brown women as they are by brown men. And I think that that's probably true. Um, and I also think that Jory, Jory's personal life reflected a kind of a politics. She was married to a Jewish lawyer, and it was very specific in the play. Uh, or rather, she was married to a Jewish man, and it's very specific in the play that Jory and Amir work at a primarily Jewish-owned law firm. Mm-hmm. So I think her personal politics reflected well as far as her being a candidate for a partnership. So I think she had played the game in a really smart way. Um, I think Ayad did a great job of um, creating the story and the distinction between how race and religion really uh, cannot coexist in certain parts of, of society. I mean, um, on your way up the ladder of ambition, you, at some point, you do have to start to reckon with uh, your otherness. And how are you going to play that out uh, as you get to the top? Mm-hmm. Yeah, also... I mean, I also think we were doing that. And I'm, I'm just going to go a little bit further with yeah. this, Lonnie. I also think that we were right in the time of examining, when this play was written, 
a post-racial society. We called ourselves a post-racial society because Barack Obama had risen to the presidency. And all of that was part of the soup, the zeitgeist that pushed that play all the way to the top. Um, it is the only play of that um, of that ilk that has reached that spot. Yeah. You know, I was very afraid that it would be the only play that ever got to the top where we were talking about anti-Muslim sentiment in this country. Um, I don't know if there has been. I don't think there has, but um, hopefully it'll change. Yeah. Well, Jory definitely has the most laugh lines in the play. As you mentioned, she is able to encounter a lot of the tense situations in the play, of which there are many, with humor. And there's one in particular that that gets a laugh line every time, and I saw the play a few times. Um, And in one instance, Amir says that at airports, he volunteers himself to be searched at security. Jory says she admires that approach. And when Jory's husband, who, as you mentioned, is white and Jewish, says, like, objectingly, that's racial profiling, Jory responds, honey, I know what it is. I I know it. I know racial profiling. (laughs) Um, And I, I, I really, that line, it's like, it's, it's cutting, but it also has that humor. I think Jory just sort of, as you said, she kind of knows the game, but she sort of knows, she's sort of comfortable as herself in a way that, that Amir, the other non-white person never gets a chance to be. Yeah, I think that that's also written into, I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways to approach that line. I mean, you could be quite acerbic with it, right? You could be like, you know what, I know what racial profile. There's lots of different ways, but this is the man she loves. And I also think part of my experience as an African-American married to a Jewish man, as we've already talked about, mm-hmm. I understood that um, you're not going to pick every fight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're, race is going to come up in the weirdest ways, you know, your partner, if he's white, if you're a black woman, you're married to a white man, that he's not going to understand privilege. He just isn't going to get it. This is before we even started talking about that. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of ways to come at how you're going to how you're going <laughs> to make yourself heard um, over over uh, the story around race and your relationship. But yeah, no, I think she navigates it very well. I think she has does it with a plum. I think she's you know the the person that I. I wonder if you can tell the person who I mirrored that character after. Take a guess. Like a famous individual? Yes. Uh, Michelle? Barack. Ah, okay. Barack. Barack Obama. Okay. Totally, totally Barack Obama from the top to the bottom. I wasn't even thinking about a woman when I, uh-huh. I started developing that character. He was at the center of the forefront of my mind because I just thought his even-keeled, middle ground, no-drama way of handling conflict and adversity was really something that I really appreciated. I mean, President Obama was no-nonsense about it, even when all of the mishigas and the craziness was going on around Mm -hmm. him. And I thought that was Jory, you know? Mm -hmm. I really did. I thought, you know, from the top to the bottom, and and, uh, I I borrowed a lot of that stuff from that character over time. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I like since you brought up the idea of, of privilege, it kind of leads its way into pipeline because the there's a comparison of experiences at a public high school and a private high school. 
and how it is manifested in the son of uh, a high school English teacher, Naya, your character. Um, so her son attends a private boarding school while she teaches at a separate public high school. And the central conflict is over an incident where the son has an encounter uh, with a teacher after feeling that he's picked on as a black student. Um, Naya wants to confront her son, but realizes just as much that she needs to hear him. So tell me about Naya's vulnerability and her strengths in this play. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm grateful for in both of those plays, in Disgraced and in Pipeline, is that the playwrights, the writers do a really good job of allowing the character to have a moment where you see her overcome. That is how you understand the character has strength, mm -hmm. right? Um, so Naya, from the very beginning, is an extremely vulnerable character. She's a single mother. She's recently divorced. It's um, divulged later on in the play that she is divorced because she was engaged in an affair, but her marriage had seemed to crater years before that um, due to neglect and lack of attention from her husband. So Naya shows great uh, vulnerability in that play. She shows, so you see her go from uh, a low space to uh, showing great strength in certain ways and then falling off a little bit as a as the arc um, gets you towards the end of the play. Um, you know, I don't, I, what, Dominique is a very specific writer, um, more than any other writer that I've worked with. She required us to demonstrate the great anguish and um, anxiety of what it means to be Black and you're experiencing um, situations and events that are completely out of your control. I think about Ahmaud Arbery. Obviously, the struggle, I don't know if you've watched the video, I watched up until the point where I could watch it and then let go, but the struggle that he had with the, with the man who was coming at him with a gun, you know, you could see that there was a great deal of anxiety in him and a great deal of anguish at, at, at being um, hunted. And I think that that is part of what Dominique wanted to make sure the audience felt. It was called Pipeline because you couldn't get out of the theater without experiencing some level of what she wanted her audience to feel. Mm -hmm. She made sure that there were uh, people in the audience who were of color, who were African-American, so that the entire audience could, ex could have an a real visceral understanding of being in a company um, of an audience of diverse people and knowing that everyone around you has probably experienced this level of anxiety at some point and maybe they experience it every damn day. Is that true? Do you know? Um, so that was a, that was a great gift of working with Dominique Mariso. Um, Naya's strength, I think, isn't really demonstrated in, you know, her arc being resolved at the end of the play. I think it's demonstrated in that she endures through an enormous emotional um, upheaval to get to her son uh, to be able to touch his face at the at the end of the play mm -hmm. and uh, say, "I heard you, I hear you." Yeah, you know, and that's uh, that's an incredible uh, journey to get through as a as an actor. Well, this weekend I rewatched Pipeline on Broadway HD, which I really recommend that listeners look it up and watch it. Um, it's like actually a, translates really well to 
a visual cinematic experience. Um, they did a great job. They did. Uh, I realized job. in this second viewing that Naya is grasping at whatever she can to save her son. And at times she's really barely holding it together. But my memory from my first viewing and seeing theater is always so ephemeral. It's so hard to hold on to the exact content of a play when you don't have the script and you just have the memory of your seeing it. Mm. But when I saw it in person at Lincoln Center, mm. I just remember thinking how strong Naya was. And then when I watched it again, and then I really saw each scene as a, as a more knowledgeable viewer, I realized, oh my gosh, she's trying to hang on as best she can. So why did I remember her as being so strong? Yeah, because what you're seeing is, you know, if you're an actor and you're trying to portray a character in pain or who's struggling, you don't, you don't um, demonstrate the pain or the struggle. You demonstrate the opposite, right? You're going to show a character who's really, if the script asks you to cry, you're going you're gonna to demonstrate a character who's trying not to cry. Mm. And then, of course, you're going to let the tears spill out. But what, you're, what your character really, no, no one wants to go into this situation and fall apart. So what you see is is the human condition that is what African American mothers go through. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to we're trying we're trying to stand up, you know. But the problem is that we keep getting pushed back down. This incredible grief, this incredible anguish of having to protect and save and create, you know. But the effort, what you're seeing on stage, what you're seeing is someone who's trying to stand up, and mm-hmm. she can't. I, that is what we do as humans. Like, <laughs> I remember my father was in a in a wheelchair in the last years of his life because he had suffered strokes, and um, we, he was constantly trying to get out of that wheelchair. My mother said to him, "Jack, you can't. You don't you know you can't get out of that chair." He didn't know it. Hmm. He didn't want to know it. He wanted to stand. You know, he said, "Can't you see I'm in denial?" So we all fell out laughing. <laughs> but it, but, but it. Um, but that's part. That's that's the thing. Also, that you get to demonstrate. You don't want. You don't want to demonstrate a woman who's falling apart. You want to demonstrate a woman who's, who's desperately trying to keep it together and enduring. I think that's what made the play feel really universal. Um, sort of that that transcended some of the um, very very specific moments that are about a black mother. But I think the universal element was saying that the idea that I will protect my child is such a fierce parental stance that even if that parent is struggling to figure out how to do so, the, the willingness, as you said, to, to protect the child and to keep them from harm's way is, is uh, an effort to be strong. So it might be undone by the you might not be successful at it. Yeah. Right, right. You might not be successful at it, but what you're going to see is the effort. That's what you're going to see. And I'm so glad you picked these two plays, Disgraced and um, Pipeline, because what both of these playwrights do is they demonstrate in the writing and the characters and the relationships, they demonstrate what is essential to being an immigrant in this country and to being an African-American in this country, which is we are a striving community. We're going to make it. My, both of my parents were educators. Dominique's mother was an educator, which is the character that Naya is loosely based on. So I think it's a perfect landscape to have a conversation around um, 
what black culture, when you start talking about um, education, the possibility that there is a, a mechanism in our education system that sends our young people right into the penal system, that is something to explore as a, as a community of, of artists. Uh, what is that? And what are we, let, let's be curious about that. And what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. I think also what Dominic does, that's so, so smart is that the one time we see uh, Naya really at the top of her game in control is when she starts her class. And she is, even though the end of the class, she ends up sort of having an emotional setback, she starts her class so confident. It is so genuinely interesting, the topic, to the audience, I think. It's a discussion of a poem, but in such an intellectual manner. And it makes you think, her son would be lucky to be in that class. Like yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's in this private school, but yeah. there's no sense that this class wouldn't be just as engaging. And I love that she does that because it's yeah. like <laughs> it's like supposed to be this school that people settle for. And meanwhile, here's this class that's so engaging and Great so teacher. intelligent. Great teacher. And I, that, that is sort of exemplary of a lot of the teachers in public schools. What we did at the beginning of it, it's so funny that's... Um, this sort of thing of talking directly to the audience and we break the fourth wall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Naya breaks the fourth wall and then we, you know, shut that bad boy right back down to, to tell the story of the play. But um, when we were um, doing the the play, the first couple of nights we started doing it in previews, Naya comes out and says, good morning class. And the audience would always, I mean, every single person in that audience would sit up and say, good morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Completely unscripted. And, um, the director said to me, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I like that. I was like, I, I, I think that means they're engaged. Yeah. I think we should keep trying it. Let's explore it. And if it gets, I, I think I can, I think I can control it and keep it in hand every now and then when, when, uh, Naya was, you know, exploring the pl- poem with the audience, uh, a person will raise their hand or something in the audience. That didn't happen all that often. Oh, that's but so funny. And people are just, you know, very dutiful, wanted to be students in the theater for this particular play. They were so engaged with the story of Gwendolyn Brooks and um, Richard Wright. And mm-hmm. um, these are writers, wonderful American writers, tell stories of African-Americans that people know when they're engaged in and they, and they wanted to participate. So that was a great part about doing that play as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's almost like once you set up a certain rule in a theater, the audience is thinking, Oh, is this the rule now? Like if you, (laughs) if you begin to engage, they're like, Oh, should I continue to be engaged? Um, Right. This is going to be what I'm going to do. I love that. So let's move on to the morning show, um, which has gotten such amazing um, acclaim and attention and, and really deservedly so. And your character Mia is a TV producer who is very driven And um, the show's central story is how a morning news show's anchors and crew and producers react uh, following the revelations that the lead anchor, anchor played by Steve Carell, has sexually harassed and assaulted members of his own staff. So how do these allegations complicate Mia's ambitions on the show? Well, Mia Jordan... He was a longtime producer on the TV show, and um, it didn't complicate her experience on the morning show until she started an extramarital affair with him that lasted 
for about 18 months. Um, when she ended the affair, um, the, the anchor, who is um, Steve Carell, Mitch Kessler, starts to behave in a retaliatory way towards her. And so when we see her at the beginning of episode one, she has spent several months um, trying to work with Jennifer Aniston's character, Alex Levy, uh, with very little success. So you, you get to find out all of the reasons why Mia started her arc the way she did in episode one, but you have to wait until you get to episode eight yeah. to, to find out all the answers as to how it went down. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, Mia was not completely aware of all of the stuff that was going on. I think she just felt the sting of his lack of attention and then suddenly uh, being ousted out of a, a spot on his production team by the executive producer, Chip Black, who's played by Mark DePlass. So it's very rare that Mia lets her emotions fly. She's really a master of professionalism and decorum. You mentioned earlier that if an actor is crying, you want to show them try not to, not to cry, to hold it back. So what did you do as, as the actress playing Mia to show how much is brewing beneath the surface? Yeah, well, this is a really hard thing to do, Lonnie, because I... I was, uh, I, you know, I did this, I shot this TV show for six months. It was actually quite hard to navigate from one week of shooting to the next. I would send messages to my uh, showrunner, Carrie Aaron. I would say, Carrie, can Mia um, come out to play this week? She's like, no, sorry. <laughs> She's still underneath it. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and, and literally I got to episode five and I was like, I, I, I am really struggling personally. I was talking to Wes Bentley about this. He shoots Yellowstone. I'm on the season three of Yellowstone this yeah. year. And he was like, you know, Yellowstone season two. I mean, I was a booger bear for me. Like I, I, I have to get a therapist in the middle of it because it's just really, really hard. I was like, right. I'm like, right. Was that just me in the morning show? It got, it just got to me. This inability to sort of let it out, but I think it is the most honest and authentic reflection of what women in that world have to do. You cannot let them see you sweat. Mm-hmm. You cannot do it. You have to keep it all together all the time. And so the act, the exercise as an actor was to demonstrate it in different ways, was to um, allow the other actors and their... Um, and my relationship with the other characters to affect her. Um, but uh, to never let it go further than what I knew the audience could see in Mia, to always sort of keep them guessing as to what and when and why she was a little bit, you know, frustrated and, and, and trapped in that job. Yeah. It was a trick. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you mentioned um, earlier in the interview about the uh, disparity in how verbal different characters are. And you mentioned Mm. that both Mia and Jory are are not especially verbal until they need to be, uh, Mm. whereas Naya is verbal throughout. And I hadn't thought about this before, but the central 
uh, turmoil or conflict for Naya is as a as a mother, not as a professional. She seems to be pretty solid professionally, but the motherhood issue is where it's really a struggle. And Family. for yeah, yeah, and in, and in with her uh, her spouse or her ex spouse, um, and mm-hmm. for Mia and Jory, it's really the professional landscape where they have to. Uh, just navigate this conflict and this area of tension. I think there's also a bit, I don't know if you know anything about the morning show network mechanisms, how morning shows work, but morning shows bring in a lot of money for networks. It's why they soak so much money into the anchors. It's why they treat them the way they do. It's why it just, the advertising dollars that come in from those morning shows the first hour from seven to eight, it's an enormous amount of money. It's an enormous amount of responsibility. And I think Jory wanted to keep herself moving forward. And and uh, yeah. she had to kind of, I'm sorry, Mia wanted to keep herself <laughs> moving forward on the morning show. And uh, so she had to keep her, herself together. But I also think that there are certain, you know, personalities that are just built for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um there are certain women that just kind of have that kind of masculine sort of, yeah, no, I'm going to handle this. No, this isn't a crisis. You know, it's not a crisis. It's just what it is. I'm going to handle it. It's going to be fine. That is Mia. That is Jory for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Naya, of course, is at the end of her rope. But I think that, again, the playwright wanted to demonstrate a Black woman who was kind of really anguished all when she starts the when she starts the play, you don't know how she's going to get to the end of it. That's how that goes. But um, when she starts out smoking a cigarette mm-hmm. <laughs> to, down to the end before class starts yeah. and um, uh, in, in Pipeline. And so, um, yeah, I, I do think the personalities that I met, I visited Good Morning America a few months ago. Um, they have a great team that allowed me to come in and, and see what they did. Um, those personalities, they're, they're just built for it. You know, George Stephanopoulos is built to be an early morning anchor. Robin Roberts, man, she can do it like nobody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're just set up for it. And and I'm lucky to be able to know that experience a little bit. I, I worked in venture capital before I became an actor. And so I know a little bit about what it's like to be around people who have to handle millions, build hundreds of millions of dollars and make good decisions without losing their mind over it and still having their shareholders uh, put their confidence in them. Like, I just, I, you know, that kind of thing is, is amazing. So I think part of it is just personality driven as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Mia also stands in contrast to Chip, who is, if not a direct boss, he's certainly more senior. And his physical demeanor is is so different than Mia's. He always is in, in need of a shave, he always <laughs> looks like he's wearing the jacket he wore the day before. Yeah. Uh, Mia never has a hair out of place or like mm-hmm. a chipped manicure. So yeah. that was so striking to me. And and also Chip is so tormented by his morality. He thinks like, how can you have a moral compass and still be in this business? Right, and right, Mia right. Mia seems to be able to navigate that a little more deftly. Well, it depends upon how you're looking at it. I mean, I certainly saw the responses of some of the audience who watched the morning show and they were like, what's her big problem? Maybe she should just get over it and we should move on to the rest of the story because I don't like this character. She's so whiny. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think there that 
it, it, that, that world, it can be so insular when you're in it. You don't realize how crazy it is um, to some extent, or at least that's what they were demonstrating in season one of the morning show. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to end on your origin story as an actor okay. and sort of take it back to beginning to work as an actor as you're beginning a life as a parent um, to sort of close this out. And because both of those have emerged from the same starting time, the starting place, Mm. as they've both evolved over time, has parenthood and acting evolved as parallel lines or as crisscrossing paths? Parallel or crisscrossing Hmm. I don't know. I've always, you know, I've always thought of myself as an actor and a mother and a human, you know, like those things are always, hmm. you know, I think the best answer is to the question is that they're, they don't crisscross or go parallel. They're all the same journey, right? They're all the same path. Like I, I could not, what happened in my life is that I could not separate being a parent from being an actor. I was 18 months out of grad school when I found out I was pregnant with my daughter and it was completely unplanned. I'd only known her father for five months. So after we decided to go our separate ways and being a single mother is, is very it's integral to understanding the level of strength and character integrity that I have to demonstrate as a human being in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I separated from my daughter's father and decided to stay being an actor. And this is right before I booked um, Disgraced. That was a conscious uh, thought on my part, um, a conscious effort to remain in a purposeful, meaningful existence and have my children side by side with me as I I continued on in my journey. so I don't think that they intersected or crisscross or, or, or parallel. I think they actually are the same path. They're always the same thing. I think my children are as much a part of my work and my art as um, my art and my work are a part of my parenting dynamic. I mean, I, I improvise all the time, Lonnie. <laughs> I'm, sponta- I'm spontaneously bringing out the storytelling and making <laughs> stories and singing songs and and you know you'll see you'll I mean that those people who know me as a mother see Mia and they're like that actually wasn't me and that was you Karen <laughs> like I've seen you do that with the kids Karen and, uh, yeah. and all that kind it of stuff it serves you and, in both realms all the time and I think that's true for everyone like you know if we could find a way to um bring all of what we are into all of what we do I think we we'd have a much more integrated and and uh, um, beautiful life. I'm very lucky to live the life I live, Bonnie. I know that. Karen, it's so nice speaking with you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) And happy Mother's Day. Oh, happy Mother's Day to you too. (laughs) Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.